Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hi guys, great episode that I've got for you this week. So, we're talking about psychological therapy and we're talking about the technology that's going to come in and help psychotherapists deliver that therapy. So, my guest is Ross Harper, and Ross is the founder and CEO of Limbic. And Limbic's on a mission to model human psychology, and in doing that, they're actually solving problems in psychotherapy. So, Limbic combines artificial intelligence with a beautiful digital product design and they make it easier than ever for patients to provide their clinicians with high quality data. Now what that means in practice is they've got a mobile app with a chatbot and through that chatbot they're able to collect data from patients which they can collate, analyse and present back to the psychotherapists, meaning that the patients get a more streamlined experience and the psychotherapists are able to spend their time doing what they do best rather than collecting data and finding those correlations. So, Ross is a computational neuroscientist by background. He uses probabilistic models to understand the brain. Uh, He describes himself as an experimentalist, a theoretician, an entrepreneur, communicator, and a lover of suffixes. Um, and you can catch Ross and get in touch with him by going to the description of this episode where you can find links to his website, his emails, and of course, all of the HS and my socials as usual. So enjoy the episode, guys. So, Ross, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? Very good, thank you. Yeah, you? Not too bad, thank you. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Ross? Uh, I'm where most startups in London sort of find themselves after a while, which is uh, Shoreditch. <laughs> nice. You're in a WeWork as well. Just to complete- I'm, not, I'm not in a WeWork. I've managed to avoid that stereotype. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, I think, nice. you know, Shoreditch is the sort of basin of attraction for all startups <laughs> and eventually they all roll down into the bottom of it. So. Nice. Silicon roundabout. Is that what they call it? That's what they call it. You know, it's a sort of... Uh, um, like a cringy nod to uh, <laughs> Silicon Valley, but we've got a roundabout at Old Street, so that's the best we could think about. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations for being part of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool, man. So, yeah, dude. So, obviously, I saw you present at uh, your Accelerator Demo Day a little while back and thought that you'd yeah. be an awesome guest for the podcast based on all the exciting things that you are doing. But I guess for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us your story? So uh, I guess my story uh, starts, um, my recent story at least starts at university. Um, So I went to uh, Cambridge University here in the UK and studied natural sciences. Um, And, uh, you know, first point I would make is that I thought this was a really good course because, um, you know, in, in the UK, when you're 17 years old, you're sort of asked to make a decision about what it is that you're going to study. It's crazy um, on it? undergraduate level yeah I do think it's mad because um we really haven't experienced enough um at school to know what we want to commit our undergraduate studies and potentially postgraduate studies to 
I had um, no it, idea. I had absolutely, exactly. I had absolutely no idea. I just had this fanciful idea <clears throat> that I wanted to do medicine, bearing in mind that I knew absolutely nothing yeah. about being a doctor and the practicalities yeah. and realities of what, what that actually yeah. meant. Well, you and me both. I mean, um, at various points um, in my sort of like school life, I was, I was dead set on being a doctor. And the thing that stopped me was uh, doing work experience, <laughs> which actually sort of taught me that um, what I really do like is biological sciences, but that's not the same thing as being a practicing doctor and being a medic. So yeah. uh, um, that was an important learning curve for me. But anyway, um, I, I got into Cambridge and I, and I did uh, natural sciences, which um, I don't know if you're familiar, if you want to do anything to do with science at Cambridge, you have to do natural sciences, which is this big umbrella term for all of science, be it physics, chemistry, uh, maths, biology. And so um, uh, I kind of was forced into this generalist undergraduate degree, which was absolutely the right thing for me because it meant that I, I tried a bit of genetics, I did a bit of zoology, I did some history and philosophy oh, wow. of science. Yeah, um, it's kind of like the American system, you know, where you sort of have majors and minors. Mm. Um, Not about education ended- you get at Cambridge, mate. <laughs> well I mean it was uh, it wasn't because I I made a sensible decision I just I just luckily found myself in a system that promoted uh, general education <laughs> I think nice. in hindsight it was a good thing but it wasn't through any sort of like clever strategy on my yeah um, and uh, but I, I ended up doing neuroscience at Cambridge and I fell in love with it um, and uh, um, that was kind of my my equivalent of a major and then I, I sort of I left an undergraduate and I thought to myself, hmm, um, well, I, I, love, I love the brain. I love these problems. I, I just think this is sort of, I could commit my uh, life to trying to understand how, you know, humans um, uh, think and, and, and how this organ works. But in my humble opinion as a 21-year-old at the time, I felt that um, it was through maths and computational methods that we would sort of crack this organ. So I then sort of like pivoted a bit and I went to UCL in, in London to do my master's in mathematical modeling so that I could end up doing my PhD, uh, kind of marrying those two disciplines together, neuroscience and maths. And I ended up doing computational neuroscience in my PhD. Um, and I stayed at UCL to do that too. And that's where I kind of got into machine learning and artificial intelligence is kind of I came from neuroscience sort of wet lab cutting up brains very sort of messy biology and I sort of upskilled in maths so that I could simulate um, brain networks instead quite a thoughtful move yeah I mean it sounds like it when I sort of paint that story (laughs) but but again I I, there was never any sort of forward thinking where I where I decided you know what this is where I want to be in five years time I wasn't that sort of um uh on it in, in sort of like coming up with a plan. I really just uh, was quite reactive and doing what I found most interesting at the time. Oh, and luckily for me, what I'm I found so most glad interesting was this. I'm so glad you've said that because that is exactly what I've said on, on multiple of these episodes. You know, the people that come on often do this. You know, they just follow what they genuinely enjoy. It just yeah. means that getting up every morning is just yeah. not as bad because you've then yeah. just iterated your career and your life into something that's slightly more enjoyable. And it's exactly what I did. Where, yeah. you know, just from being a doctor, you know, took a few fellowship years that was slightly more palatable, started doing a bit of tech that was a bit more palatable. And all of a sudden you just follow your nose, don't you, as to what, as to what you enjoy and, and you sort of create opportunities out of it because you end up really enjoying it and you're so passionate and you spend all your time doing it and you become quite good at it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
I, I feel like uh, most strategies will probably be wrong because you know <laughs> the world is too complex and the future is so uncertain. And so yeah. the sort of like easiest way to maximize for your own personal happiness is to just do what interests you most and follow what you're passionate about. And then it doesn't really matter whether or not that takes you to fame or money or love anything it. because love it. the baseline is that, oh, well, yeah, but I do love this by definition because that's why I'm doing it. Awesome. Love it, mate. So where, where are we next in the story? So where are we next? Um, so I finished my PhD. Um, I was, uh, you know, by, by all measures, it was a decent PhD. We, we published and, uh, um, and it was, uh, um, you know, a great experience. I did that in three years. And then I sort of had this sort of bifurcation point where I had to decide whether or not I was going to do a postdoc, which would be the usual path. <laughs> Can I just say, I love that most people call it a crossroads. <laughs> Your scientific background means you've called it a bifurcation point. That's right. amazing. I love Sorry, that. Sorry, crossroads. <laughs> crossroads. <laughs> uh, so I reached this crossroads <laughs> road um, and, uh, and I thought, well, look, I could do a postdoc and, and start applying for labs, which, you know, would have been great. But I kind of always had a little um, hankering to do my, my own stuff. And uh, I was always very applied when I was doing my PhD. Um, so uh, I guess um, that's kind of why I was gravitating towards entrepreneurism. Then there was a London-based accelerator program uh, called Entrepreneur First. Do you know them? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So one of their talent uh, sort of scouts, I guess, came to my institute in my final year and and gave a little presentation about entrepreneur first and explained how it all worked. I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty cool to be honest with you. And, and, uh, and I sort of looked into it and ended up, you know, long story short, making the decision to uh, apply to their program. And I was fortunate enough to get on. And then that's kind of where my entrepreneurial journey really took off. So tell me about those early days then. I mean, obviously using EF to find a co-founder and thinking about a problem to solve obviously yeah. led you into, into you call it your entrepreneur journey, but essentially founding a company that actually solves a problem. And I'm always super yeah. interested to hear about the very, very, very early days of people discovering a problem to solve, discovering how passionate they were about solving it and how they you know, put those early bits together to start building a company. Yeah. Um, well, so I'm probably not a very good um, exemplar uh, <laughs> because I, 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 again, this kind of goes back to the following what you're interested in thing. I was very sort of uh, rigid in, in my sort of overall vision. Yeah. Um, and that was, I firmly believe that the way uh, artificial intelligence is going right now is fantastic. And, you know, the sky's the limit, but we seem to be ignoring um, a key part of human intelligence whenever we're sort of talking about artificial intelligence. And the key part of human intelligence is emotional intelligence, being able to read the mental states of those around us and factor this into our decision making um, so that we can actually make uh, emotionally intelligent decisions. And, and, and I think that's really important when you think of it from a cooperativity um, angle. So it's all well and good to have a perfectly logical agent operating in an environment alone. But when you've got other agents, potentially emotional agents, i.e. humans, then it's really quite critical for um, any AI um, sort of entity to be able to factor in uh, human emotion. I think that's going to be critical moving forward in terms of computer and humans interfacing. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of like this sort of like broad nebulous opinion. This was my thesis basically. And so I was like, um, 
If that's the case, then what we really need to do is focus on building emotion recognition systems so that computers can read human emotions and mental states. And so that was the technology that I was interested in working on. And, I, and then I was an entrepreneur first, trying to work out where, that's, where that technology could be used to solve a big problem, which is absolutely the wrong way around to do it, by the way. It's supposed, <laughs> to find, it's supposed to find the problem first and then come up with your solution. Whereas I was, I think from my academic background, I really was sort of like a technology focused. And, and I was thinking sort of like, how will the world change over the next few years? And how do I be a part of that? Um, interesting it's often it's often the way that it's 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 often the difference between art and science isn't it because science as you say will often find a problem to solve and then figure out ways to solve it and artistry is more about just sort of playing around with the 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 cutting edge things and and you know eventually stumbling upon something that might be something you know it's it's interesting that you've kind of mixed the two yeah it's it's a strange one I, i like that sort of um analogy you draw between art and science i mean the boundary between those two disciplines is pretty blurred anyway, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You need to be very creative when you're doing science. It's not Absolutely a really good agree. Um, But uh, yeah, I guess in this, in this specific case, um, I was more focused on where do I think the world is going to be and, and go over the next 10 years? And how do I make sure that I'm a part of that? Because I want to be a part of that. Nice. And, so, and so I was sort of thinking along these lines. Anyway, um, I sort of pitched this idea to my now co-founder, Sebastian or Bass. Um, and uh, he, he, his background was in software development. But he loved the idea of, uh, of computer interfaces and, and software products that were able to uh, recognize how their users were feeling and sort of adjust their behaviors accordingly. So he kind of got sold on, on that long, long-term vision too. And then we set about trying to work out well, where could this idea and technology be used today and and you know what problems would that take us to and we sort of we floated around in the ether for a while i can take you through some of the sort of uh, the the potential problems we were thinking about solving if you're interested um Definitely. okay cool so uh basically the first we thought was um hey whenever you're doing product development you get user researchers and, and um user interface researchers to sort of sit down interview loads of um, potential users get these sort of focus groups together and ultimately make uh, product feature updates based on what you find. Um, yeah. Maybe we could sort of, uh, you know, by, by continuously measuring the emotional state of a user while they're, while they're using a beta, maybe we can sort of get rid of UX designers almost oh, interesting. And sort of democratize UX design. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really cool. You know, like I, I can get on board with this narrative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then we did what, you, what you're supposed to do when you're building a company and we went out and we, and we tried to gather data to support this hypothesis. So we interviewed a shed load of UX researchers. We interviewed product development teams um, and users who'd done sort of focus group testing. And very quickly we realized that, UX research is actually not a very big part of product development. <laughs> uh, and you think it would be, and you think it should be, but actually in practice, um, there's like one UX researcher on a team of a hundred developers often, and they don't carry much uh, weight. And so basically we just didn't see that there was a, a big business case here, uh, big mm-hmm. enough at least. So then we sort of went, well, uh, we moved into the health and wellbeing space a bit. And we said, look, being able to understand mental states, like, you know, the low hanging fruit would be stress. People are already looking into that already um, by looking at heartbeat dynamics from wearable devices. Mm. So um, 
maybe we can sort of like build on that and build a, a toolbox so that the emerging well-being health and wellness devices in uh, or like um, apps in the app store like meditation apps or habit tracking apps or period tracking apps um, maybe these would benefit from a a sort of like toolbox with algorithms to analyze fitness tracker data and work out mental state not just stress but maybe positive and negative emotion and these sorts of things sure um, and that's by the way where we where we sort of focused on our ip development so um, Throughout all of this commerciality, we were building out the core technology, which was fundamentally looking at mobile data and wearable data and seeing whether or not we could predict user emotional state from those input signals. And, you know, we actually are pretty good at that now. And how, um, how, how wide is your, I don't know if that's the right phrase or right question, but how, um, how are you measuring that is what I'm trying to get at. And, and how many different emotional states are you declaring or how many scales are you yeah. using? And, and how, how do, yeah. I guess, how do you quantify human emotional state? That's quite yeah, I mean, look, that's kind of the company mission. Um, we haven't <laughs> cracked it yet. Quantifying something because, you know, woolly and fluffy as emotion is, is challenging. Um, it's, it, emotions themselves are a really weird thing because we're all very, very clear that they exist. Yet none of us can really agree on a correct definition or, or, mm. or agree on what they are. So we know they are, but we don't know what they are. Mm. And that's true even out of sort of like common parlance. That's true in, in um, academic circles, in psychology. There are a lot of different ways you can define emotions. You can say they're discrete um, neurobiological entities where, you know, anger is, is a completely separate thing to fear, which is completely separate to joy. And then other psychologists prefer a more continuous framework where they sort of say, okay, there are a number of dimensions like uh, something called valence, which is sort of pleasant and unpleasant. Sure. And then there's um, arousal, sort of like high, low energy. And you can start mapping emotions that we know, like joy, onto these sort of like 2D coordinate systems. So if you're unpleasant and pleasant is the x-axis and your low high energy is the y-axis then uh sort of joy exists somewhere with very pleasant and very high energy oh, I see. whereas anger is sort of like still very high energy but not very pleasant and you and you know other psychologists sort of take this dimensional approach they call it right. to categorizing emotions so you know it, it's really hard there's a whole sort of like area of uh, intellectual debate around what emotions are so it's very difficult for my company limpid to <laughs> um you know start being rigid about quantifying them we we subscribe more to the dimensional view currently okay um and uh and so we we really are looking at sort of like being able to predict pleasant and unpleasantness on a continuous scale based Got on it. Input. um because arousal or high low energy is something which um uh people have already been looking looking at already um and that's something that, that we're also interested in i suppose long story short without sort of like taking you down a technical rabbit hole here um it doesn't really <laughs> matter which which sort of um framework you subscribe to on how to define emotions because what's really important is um are you able to correct is your algorithm able to predict how a subject self-reports so if they say that they're feeling very pleasant or if they say that they're in a state of anger, can your algorithms correctly predict what they say? 
And that's how we measure whether we're doing a good job or not. Got it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's, it, yeah, it's a lot deeper than I guess I thought initially. And even, you know, looking at your, your app and things, I'm sure we'll definitely go into this. The, I, I guess the, the theory that goes into all the innards of how you're actually doing this is so complicated because I, and I guess one of the issues that, that is in this space is that so many people can just put like a front door app on the app store with anything in the background and inside the invisible black box. But it seems like you guys have thought so deeply about what actually goes into this and actually yeah. the quality of the product will be significantly higher, but it's a shame that often these things appear next to other things on the app store that might, necess- might not necessarily have had that uh, level of love and care, let's say in their development. Yeah, and it and it does depend on what you're building. I've got I've got no problem with uh, you know a product development studio who build a note taking app for mental health and uh, helps patients keep track of their their sort of like mood by just you know effectively giving them something to note stuff down. That's absolutely fine. I think that's really helpful. I think it becomes dangerous when they start making unfounded claims. Yes. Um, and, and that's when it becomes something, you know, which is potentially damaging and where you, you hope regulatory bodies sort of step in. Yeah, because one thing I did like about you guys when I was researching you before this was you do have you, you're humble and you're honest about where you're at, which I really like. Oh, great. Well, I'm, and you, and you're, <laughs> you're also quite transparent as well, which which again is. I, I think it's a, it's a great quality in this space, especially when, um, yeah, in the context of a few things that, that do tend to overclaim and things for, for competitive advantage and all the rest of it. I think it's, a, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an interesting space that you guys are in for those reasons, but I, I do like what you're doing. So talk to me about the actual product itself then and tell me what, yeah. it, what it looks like to a user and a yeah. customer and let's go through that. <clears throat> Yeah, so let me just quickly finish off sort of like the journey. So we were looking into sort of like emotion recognition vision. We we were looking into sort of health and well-being apps um, because there are so many that are growing up, like meditation apps like Calm. Um, and so we thought maybe we could sort of be a data backend to these apps. But we, we essentially, we, we had a lot of good traction in that space and we were able to collect uh, data from 200,000 users by integrating with third-party apps. And that was really nice. important for sort of training our algorithms. Yeah, that was like, that was super useful. Um, and that kind of gave us our, our head start on a data perspective and, and allowed us to build out the core technology. But from a business perspective, we didn't want to be sitting behind these third-party apps. We didn't want to be a provider to these apps and taking, you know, just sort of like operating through them we wanted to build something which was going to be, um, you know, which was our product and was solving the problem that we were most passionate about. And um, I'd say uh, about a year ago, we, the problem that we really settled on um, was the issue of, of um, quantifiability in mental illness. So in terms of health, which is something that we all wanted to work on, and we thought that the application of emotion recognition technology was most ethical and could potentially be most valuable in healthcare and in mental health care. The, the problem that we identified was that it's a very qualitative like pursuit. It's a very verbal discipline. It's not like other areas of medicine, like cardiology or oncology or radiology, where they've all benefited from technological advance and advanced uh, measurement equipment. Psychological therapy is still very much just you sit opposite another human and you talk and the human 
uses their experience and, and skills to sort of pattern recognize what, what it is in what you're saying and, and try and identify relationships between thoughts, feelings and behavior. But the way I just described that, that sounds like something that a computer could do. Yeah. You know, computers are very good at collecting data and looking for patterns in different variables. And so we kind of took this idea and thought if we could bring better data to psychological therapy, we could improve efficiency, we could improve recovery rates, and all that would save the payer money, but would also have a meaningful, positive impact on the lives of the patients and help clear up those waiting lists. So this is like, you know, that was very much something, and, and as a founder, it was really exciting to go from yeah, we're building this technology that we, we all really want to exist, but we don't know where it's going to work, to, ah, we, you know, we've really found something that we all really care about. You know, we sort of like took a vote on the team as to where we wanted to focus. Um, and this was just, you know, unanimous. That That's we, great. We wanna, just we having get that out motivation of across exactly. everybody. Yeah, you want to get out of bed on a Monday morning and, you know, you're not thinking, oh, it's another Monday, a whole week ahead of me. You're just like, yeah. you know, let's try and let's try and make a difference here. So nice. we we kind of, we a fire got lit up under the team in a way that I hadn't seen before. And this was really exciting as a founder to see. And then um, we, we started about building a uh, product, which first and foremost today, is about improving the flow of information from the patient to the clinician. I'll get into how that works in a second. But in um, moving forward, we still stick to this vision of um, imagine if through technology, you could recognize different mental states and use this in some way. But you know that's, that's going to come over the next five, 10 years. And today we're solving a, a, the same problem in a sort of rudimentary way. So what we do is, We've got this mobile app, which uses the chatbot, right? Um, you see chatbots are emerging all over the place, particularly in healthcare, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got this chatbot, and it basically, it just has casual conversation with the patient out in the real world. So, you know, it's about getting the balance between being annoying, but it's, it's got intelligent responses, and the patient can just talk to it. And the chatbot, you know, responds. Now, what we do is we then are looking for and extracting the therapeutically usable information. So we're looking for how is this person feeling at a given time based on their conversation, you know, based on the words they're using. Um, and, you know, where are they? Who are they with? What are they doing? And so all of these things allow us to start looking for correlations between the who, what, when, where's and the how are they feeling. And then we can start providing this information on a weekly basis to that patient's clinician um, because we're integrated with therapy, right? We're like, it's very much a, we need to have a patient and a therapist in the loop. This is not a B2C play. Mm. Um, and then we pass all the information that we've extracted and organized and analyzed and we give that to the clinician so that the clinician doesn't have to spend one or two or three sessions which ultimately somebody's going to have to pay for collecting this information and looking for the patterns themselves so that we can fast track productive conversation and leave the therapist to do what they do best, which is formulate treatment plans and problem solve. Does mm. that make sense? It does. It does. Um, my question there then is about, 
it's I mean it's not only just applied to this actually it's applied to quite a lot of artificial intelligence machine learning in terms of diagnosis and treatment but when that clinician receives all of this information there's a clinicians are humans and the relationship between a clinician and a patient is is a human one and often there needs to be like a level of trust there and that level of trust is is between the patient and clinician but also between the clinician and the data because if the clinician doesn't trust what they're given it's very difficult for them to confidently then go and prescribe something is that is that an element that you guys are looking at in any way in terms of how do you present this to a clinician so that they actually understand it is that something that you guys have thought about yeah, I mean, you're bang on, James. I think your your medical background um, <laughs> is, is revealing itself. Thank um, you. I've done a few of these interviews, mate. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I'd say the first thing I would comment on is you you're absolutely right on the level of trust between the patient and the clinician, and there have been studies to show that um, that sort of uh, like clinician charisma, a very human trait is one of the key indicators in health outcomes, right? So it's Interesting. not clinical. Yeah, it's just... Um, I didn't know it being was that, able... that definitive. Yeah, well, particularly in psychological therapy, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so this is one of the reasons why Limbic is not kind of a standalone product, uh, a sort of direct-to-consumer play where we, where we would potentially be used in place of a clinician because we firmly believe that that human touch is is fundamental to helping yeah. people with uh, an actual, you know, clinical condition or, or um, people who've been diagnosed with depression, and anxiety, it's critical that they get, you know, that we don't sort of like start claiming that the human isn't necessary anymore. They absolutely are. Yeah. Um, what we're trying yeah. to do is work alongside that therapeutic process and augment the conversation so that 10 CBT sessions to reach recovery becomes seven. And that's where the commercial win comes in but it also comes in in terms of the patient's experience and it comes in in sort of like helping clinicians do their job better and you know which ultimately is the reason they got into the into the career path one one perceives um so uh that's kind of like the trust element between the patient and the clinician we very much believe in that at limbic um in terms of the trust in the clinician uh, between the clinician and the data um you're absolutely right and that's why we are not in the way I described the product, it was about taking the data that the patient provides and organizing that in a way that makes it easy to sort of see relationships, but we don't transform their data into anything new. And we don't sort of like generate some new index, which would then be, it would be a case of, well, do I trust this index? You know, and what happens if I start making clinical decisions based on this index? Because, you know, then you get into sort of like some dodgy territory and you need, you need a whole evidence base quite rightly to support that index. So Limbic today is really about, you know, cutting through the noise and organizing the information in a way that makes the clinician's job easier and makes it uh, faster for them to really hone in on on the sort of like relationships at play between thoughts, feelings, Got and it. behavior. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna I'm gonna simplify this a little bit just just to make sure yeah. I've understood. So, and just for our listeners, I guess. So the listeners that might have been in have done some mental health training or something, they'll know things like PHQ nine scores, which yeah. are, which as you will know as well, you know questionnaires whereby there are certain questions in there which will determine someone's mood or some you know that sort of thing so i imagine what you're saying is that essentially in that kind of contextualized colloquial chat that you're having with your chatbot you might for example squeeze in a few phq9 scores which you're going to score 
And then you're just going to present that to the clinician by just saying like, Hey, look, the chat bot over the past four days has actually determined that their PHQ nine scores are this. And they're, and actually, as you say, you've cut through all the noise. You, you've, you've built the, the trust with the patient and the chat bot to extract the information. And you're literally just passing that to the clinician. Have I then got that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, right. we use PHQ nine for depression. We use GAD seven for anxiety. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, um, you, you bang on, we use these routine health outcomes and we, we provide that directly to the clinician so that the uh, clinician doesn't need to use their pen and paper questionnaires and, and manually copy that over into a di digital format. So that's one of the sort of like logistical things that, that we're doing. We're also looking for, you know, if, if they're having uh, coffee, right? Because, mm. you know, we're able to extract that from the conversation. The PHQ-9 doesn't extract the fact that they're having coffee, but we know they're having coffee because they said they're having coffee. So we identify the, what are they doing? And then we uh, can start looking for relationships between um, when the person is having coffee yeah. and anxiety before yeah. or after. So we can start like quantifying those relationships. So we, we, that is not, you know, that's not a new index. That's just sort of, uh, that's something that they would, they would come out in conversation with the therapist, but we don't want to have to sort of like have three extra CBT sessions just for that to come out. We would rather alongside the PHQ nines and the GAD sevens and the sort of like usual negative thought diaries, we'd, we'd rather sort of say, and you might also want to talk to them about coffee because they seem to have a relationship between coffee and anxiety. Love it. Love it. And I, I also like the fact within that, then you're not, as you say, by not creating a new index, you're not patronizing the clinician. You're not oversimplifying anything. You're just producing them with the information that they're going to extract anyway themselves. You're just saving them the time. Yeah. I really like that. The other thing that I think is particularly pertinent to this is the fact that you are consciously not a B2C player. You are consciously not going straight to consumer and trying to replace anything that's already happening in terms of diagnosis and treatment, particularly. Yeah. I think that is, it's a really good differentiator, I think, for people that, or startups that are then clearly going to disproportionately spend time looking at the regulation, looking at how these things are actually put together, how, how to actually sell it. Because if you're going to sell to a healthcare provider or a clinician or a group like that, the, the, the innards of the startup and the innards of the product needs to be of such a higher quality and held to such a higher standard. And therefore the startup, you know, is, is holding themselves to that standard. I think it's really dangerous when, especially with mental health products, when they do go B2C and, 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 you know, they tread that line of that, very gray area between mm. is this suggesting is this helping or is this diagnosing and, and treating yeah. you know it, it's it, it's a line that makes me feel very uncomfortable whereas for you guys that are clearly saying actually we're firmly on the side of going to clinicians we're firmly on the side of this being of the highest clinical evidence that actually we're going to sell straight to them. I, I think, you know, it's, it's, as I say, it's definitely a differentiator in the market in terms of the AI machine learning health things yeah. that are out there, you know? Yeah, I think so, James. And, and also to sort of like to comment on what you just said there, I, I think it's, um, uh, I wonder how much longer digital health, you know, B2C um, plays are going to keep operating the way they do because i think regulation is catching up and i think everybody's getting a little bit nervous about the, the sort of like the, the volume of different products that are out there 
and the fact that, you know, there, there just isn't an evidence base behind a lot of them. And then on the other side, you've got the sort of straight B2B plays where companies are trying to build, um, you know, use AI for fantastic diagnostics and things like that. But in many settings, the technology just isn't there yet. Not yet. And so those companies are having to sustain themselves often on external funding for a, um, for a long time <laughs> because they're, they're developing and it's a deep tech play. Now, I've got nothing but respect for the, for the you know, AI and diagnostics um, space. That's very much where Limbic is ultimately heading. But we want to get there via a sort of like a practical, useful solution today. And a bit of revenue, maybe? <laughs> yeah, working with the clinicians. And, and ultimately, if you've got the clinician in the loop, that's our expert label. So from yeah. a machine learning um, perspective, that is fantastic data because it means that we've got the mobile data we're collecting through the patient, the patient's self-reported mood, and then also the clinician's expert diagnosis. And all that together allows us to sort of build this data moat, which makes our algorithms, um, you know, better and more accurate. And also gives us the possibility of getting this evidence base so that, uh, you know, a few years down the line, we can say, you know what, um, we're pretty good at predicting somebody's PHQ-9 based on their mobile data without them having to fill out questionnaires. Um, yeah. And that can, that can be really useful. And you can use that to continuously monitor, you know, a score of depression. Um, and, and that can, you know, that, that allows us to sort of move into that space. But we don't want it to be, you know, we don't have application, we don't have application, we don't have application. Oh, look, now we're a diagnostic company. We want to <laughs> get there step by step. Good for you. So tell me, talk to me about business model. Yeah. So, um, you know, like most startups, the business model is something that, you know, you've got to constantly refine and work as you, out as you go along. Um, the commerciality comes from the fact that we think that we can improve recovery rates. Um, we've got a load of preclinical evidence to suggest that we can improve recovery rates through um, our product. If we can, that saves the payer money. Yeah. Um, interestingly, and this is probably something a lot of health tech startups come up against, um, there are, it's not a very clear uh, seller-buyer relationship. You've got, um, I'd say, three stakeholders, really. You've got the patient is a stakeholder in this process, the clinician is a stakeholder, and then the payer is a stakeholder. So the patient and the clinician need to want to use the product and need to get benefit from the product. Both sides of the equation need to get benefit from the product in order for you, know, you to have usage and, and value. But the payer needs to get economic utility from the product. And there, there's, you know, that's not the same thing as, as why the patient and the clinician might use the product. So you've got to make sure that you're catering to all three stakeholders and that the NHS as the payer or a health insurer or, you know, a self-funded patient are getting economic utility, but then the sort of like, you know, the patient from a user perspective and the clinician from a user perspective are getting some benefit. And this is something that we've been working out, but ultimately the, um, the economic utility is that we can improve recovery rates, which we've calculated saves, um, you know, can save between 100 and 300 pounds per patient for recovery um, each time they reach recovery. Um, which means that we're looking on a subscription basis. So sort of uh, X amount of money per patient per month. And then the second they get discharged, they're able to use the product for a while after, or they can just stop using it. Got it. So specifically then, who are the customers that you're targeting? <clears throat> so we're targeting um, cognitive behavioral therapy in primary care for depression and anxiety. So in the... 
the yeah. NHS, that would be uh, IAP services, improving access to psychological yeah. therapy. Um, uh, but then you've also got private clinics. Now, private clinics are, you know, again, just clinicians, patients, but the funder is usually a health insurer. Um, uh, so you need to get on the list of approved treatments for the health insurer. But that, you know, that list is basically determined by what their clinicians are saying they want to use. So again, you need the clinicians buy. Um, and then you've also got the sort of like, in some cases, the patients themselves self-fund or supplement their private, uh, private therapy with their own uh, cash. Um, and so they are also a potential pair. Cool. And so where are you on that journey then in terms of acquiring those customers and getting all that sorted? Are you guys actually selling yet or are you still finishing off no, bits and bobs no. of the product? Not yet because um, it's very valuable to us to have uh, people using the product um, yeah. because we get all that input data that I described yeah. and then we get these sort of like, we're able to make the product better. Quickly yeah. You're getting stronger being used. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so from both the, the technological angle about, in, you know, one day creating these diagnostic tools, we need more data. So we need more usage. And from the um, sort of like adoption angle today, we need to sort of make the product better and better so that it can get used widely. So we're focusing mostly on adoption and, and we're working with uh, 25 private clinics right now oh, nice. who, um, who, you know, like the product and are sort of like working with us to build the product. Ultimately the plan is, you know, we've got conversations with NHS IAP services. The NHS is famously a bit um, slower to move <laughs> than private. So that's something that we're sort of like working on. That's a sort of like long-term arc and we've got a, uh, a number of discussions about doing trials within within different um, services. So that's kind of where we're at today. We will begin charging for the product when we when revenue becomes um, uh, a sort of like focus for us. But it, it isn't right now. It's about mm. developing the product. It's about getting the uh, data moat for our competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, and we've also we're externally funded, so we we don't need to worry just yet about yeah, revenue. which makes a lot of sense. And you've summed that up. Very nicely and very succinctly. Even, even <laughs> the phrase "data moat" for competitive advantage. Oh, I love that. It often takes me about twenty minutes to drag that out of people than people that I interview. That that one wonderfully phrased. So, what do you guys need at the moment? I mean, huge amount of listeners to this podcast. Both in the, I mean, only fifty percent of our listeners are in the UK. Even the rest are spread around the world. Mm. What is it, you guys? What is it you guys could do with? I mean, is it more private clinics? Is it more users is it more clinician champions what what is it you're after yeah i'll take all of the above please james <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we are we're sort of um we want to get as many private clinics using limbic as possible um and uh and then we want to sort of do a build an evidence base so that we can really stick some numbers on the um on the value proposition and to do that uh sort of like a big public health service like the NHS or, or somewhere else in Europe um, would be really helpful to us because that's a sort of like a standardized ecosystem rather than having variability between the different private practices. So we're, we're really looking for clinical partners right now. I suppose um, in, in terms of the US, if, if there were US listeners, um, you know, we're, we've got ambitions to spread to the US. It's the largest uh, psychological therapy market in the world. Um, and CBT is, is the most popular form over there. So um, we, we've got a, a small amount of venture capital money from US investors, but we would, we would love to sort of uh, raise money 
in the US and build out our connections over there so that we can grow in, in that market. Amazing. Can I just say your website is absolutely beautiful. I, <laughs> I love it. It is, it is gorgeous. Like it's just the, when the, when the photos rotate as you scroll down, I mean, on the whole yeah. thing, is just, it's just, oh, I'm, just I'm really pleased to say that. I, one of our sort of, a uh, um, part of our culture at Limbic is that we really care about how things look. Um, you know, we want to put out stuff that we're proud of and, and we want our, our products to be something that people love to use and, and like, you know, really get enjoyment out of it. So kind of built into the fabric of everything we do, even the sort of like PDF documents we create, we really focus on, on how things look and we've got a designer who works on that. So I'm really pleased to hear that you, uh, that you awesome. like it. You know what? There is a lot to be said about attention for detail, attention to detail. Sorry. The, you know, the amount of pitch decks I look at, the amount of websites that I look at, all these different things, it's, it's little things. It's, I mean, Alex, my co-founder in HS taught me this a long time ago, you know, always click on the social links of websites, always have a look yeah. at when, what the, what year the copyright is yeah. and, and just simple things, just re- really yeah. simple things. Like just everything works. All the links are active. You know, it is the baseline, but then when it's, when it's joyous as well, like yours, it's <laughs> like, Oh, actually, yeah, this is going to be a good guest. I can tell, you know, it, it, it's that sort of thing. I, yeah. Just a, another little learning point for people listening. I think if you can get your website on and for God's sake, make sure your, your social links work and your copyrights <laughs> up to date. Um, Ross, honestly, this has been, this has been a real pleasure, mate. I've, I've loved learning about what you're doing. I think the, the as I say, the attention to detail, not only in your website, but actually in, in how you're building your product means I think you guys are going to win. I think you guys are, are, are going to do really well. There's, there's plenty of listeners, as I say, globally. I think there are quarter of our listeners based in the US. There are, again, people that listen who, who run clinics and things. So for them, I definitely encourage them to look at your website, which is limbic.ai. I'm going to put in the show notes links to Ross's um, emails and socials and website and all that sort of stuff. But um, Ross, thank you so much for coming on, mate. I mean, the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to just summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're doing at Limbic and to summarize those asks that you've got of our audience. So by all means, take it away, sir. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I have a tendency to ramble, James. As Perfect. Well, we've got unlimited amount of time, <laughs> sir, so take your time. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm Ross Harper. I'm the CEO of Limbic. We're a London-based AI startup. We're bringing better data to psychological therapy. Um, our product is currently in beta. It's a mobile app which uses a chatbot to drive patient engagement and have simple conversations with patients going through therapy. We then take that conversational data and we extract the usable information and we give that to their clinician in the form of a simple digest, which fast tracks productive conversation in therapy. So we kind of see ourselves as a personal assistant for both the patient and the therapist while therapy is taking place. Um, we, uh, we're constantly looking for more clinical partners, more CBT therapists who would like to use our product and, and, and give us a go, tell us what they think, give us feedback, help us develop the product more and make it into something that you want to use. Um, and we will be raising um, uh, our next round of venture funding in uh, beginning in Q2 of 2020. And we're particularly interested in any US investors who might be out there listening and uh, want to invest in a exciting digital mental health startup. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Ross. Thanks very much, James. 
Hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. Thank you.